This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today, this year's first candidate town hall series. We are very excited to present conversations with six candidates running in municipal elections in South King County. Hugo Garcia is running for Burien City Council. Cliff Coffin and Don Bennett are running for Kent City Council and Mayor of Kent, respectively. Edis Guzman is running for SeaTac City Council. Soleil Lewis is running for City Council in Des Moines. And Joseph Todd is running for Renton City Council. This town hall was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, June 29th. We are so glad to have everybody here tonight, and we are especially excited about this slate of candidates. And so because we have limited time with each of them, I really want to make sure that we get the most out of our time here. So I'm going to jump right in and uh, introduce Hugo Garcia. He currently serves on both Burien's Planning Commission and the Burien Economic Development Partnership. He engages regularly with neighbors, the Burien faith community, and grassroots community groups, and he is running for Burien City Council in position one. Hugo Garcia, welcome. How are you, man? Doing fantastic. Thank you so much for the invitation. Again, my name is Hugo Garcia, and I'm running for Burien City Council position one, and I use he, him, his pronouns. Thank you so much for the invitation. Really, really excited to be here. Well, we're doubly excited that you're here, my friend. And so I, I want to just jump in and talk about your background a little bit. You have a very compelling story. And one one of the things that really jumped out to me is on your website, you talk about how your parents uh, were able to support a family of five on your father's income as a waiter and your mother's work as a high school lunch lady. And that is something that, as we know, is just simply not possible anymore. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and also how it informed your decision to run for office. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate that. And yeah, I, I'm very proud of uh, being brought up in an immigrant working family household. Uh, my parents came here in the late 80s and we ended up making a home in unincorporated King County uh, Buren before it was actually Buren before it incorporated into a city and uh, because it was one very affordable and my dad could take transit to downtown Seattle where he worked at a family uh, Mexican restaurant at the base of the Space Needle. Uh, he could he ended up taking transit six days a week for over 20 years to that job and and on that salary was able to raise a family of, of five with the help of my mom working that part-time lunch lady as we got older uh, we were just able to have a place to live. My dad could travel uh, to work and he raised us. Um, and now one brother, he's a teacher, he's an educator here at the Highland School District. Uh, another brother is a uh, elected school board member. And I'm actively involved helping small businesses one-on-one -on -one in my day job and, and what I've done, as well as being really committed to uh, here the Buren community over the last five, six years, especially since the last um, presidential election happened. And yeah, I don't know well, if people could do that in Buren anymore, right? And that's why I'm dri I'm driven to 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 be involved and be a part of making sure that that does happen. Yeah, and I know a lot of what you stand for is creating opportunities. And you know, I want to talk about your priorities a little bit here. Uh, and let's start with the number one concern among uh, likely voters in a recent crosscut poll, and that was housing. Um, I wonder how specifically the housing crisis is impacting Burien. And how would you like to guide things differently? Yeah, for sure. So my lived experience is really framing a lot of that. Uh, I wanted to stay here in Buren and, and in the, where I grew up. Uh, Ten years ago, my brother and I were looking for a place to live. We could not afford anything, even, even at the last time when uh, the last banking crisis came, uh, when things were really bad. The only way we could afford to live here was 
finding a place together, we found a duplex. Multifamily housing gave us the opportunity to stay in the community that we grew up or where we developed. Um, and that has stood out. You know, I, I, as I started to get more involved civically, I found that housing is definitely a crisis. The cost is super expensive and there is a myth when it comes to affordable housing. We all speak about the need, but few people actually understand and get into the details of realizing that affordable housing is not built by a market rate or, or just regular developers. It's all a nonprofit effort where state, county, cities have to work together to, to make it happen. And I've been working on the planning commission the last three years here in Buren to make sure that we bring back the missing middle housing because I've lived in it. I've been able to see that if you have duplexes, triplexes, quadruplexes, families can afford to stay here. I've learned about the limited land we have. So we have to have very more efficient use. We're not going to grow land, but people are going to continue to come here. It's a beautiful place to grow up. So making sure that you bring back uh, missing middle housing, you protect the affordable housing that you have with uh, tenant rights, ordinances that make sure that current affordable housing stock is sustained. And then you, you just fight like heck to make sure that you make affordable housing a priority for your city or your community because market rate is going to do what market rate does. Um, and that is build more housing, but it's the pricing as we're seeing is just not accessible by most. And we want to make sure that working families have a place to live like the ones that I grew up in. Well, thank you for that. And I will just point out that that is certainly not the last that we're going to hear uh, on the issue of housing tonight. Uh, I think pretty much every candidate uh, has uh, some things to say about that. And I'll also say, if you're just joining us right now uh, and you have a question for one of the candidates, uh, please be sure to enter it into the chat bar while we are speaking uh, with them. We're having 10 minutes with each candidate. So you also prize what you call economic resilience. Um, you have worked, as you said, with small businesses at the nonprofit level, at the county level. What do small businesses in Burien need right now to most effectively bounce back from the shutdown, do you think? Yeah, definitely is continued technical assistance and support when it comes to adjusting to the new reopening guidelines, uh, making sure that they get support, uh, accessing whatever funding sources are still available. As we're reopening, you're seeing less and less grant opportunities and more uh, affordable, low interest rate loan opportunities through both SBA and even the State Commerce Department recently launching a flex fund only for Washington businesses. But people need help in filling out these applications, especially brown and black and uh, uh, native community members that don't have an attorney, don't have a CPA and staff that can help them navigate that. So technical assistance that's culturally relevant and in language is really, really critical. Uh, as we're coming out of this pandemic and we're, we're going to, into, you know, reopening, a lot of folks have been having to survive out in the streets. And so you're seeing that public safety in our business sectors is something that's important. And I just want to make sure that we're really thoughtful and making sure that we lead with community nonviolent service to make sure that our business sectors have that also uh, attention when it comes to making sure that our business communities are also being protected as well. Thank you for that uh, and for bringing up public safety. And, you know, you, you, I want to kind of loop back to something that you were talking about in terms of uh, making uh, things more accessible in terms of language. On your site, you say, as an immigrant myself, 
who as a kid had to translate school notices, health announcements, and breaking news for my parents to stay informed, I know how important it is to ensure critical city news and resources are made available to all equally. So it would be my understanding that that is not the case for Burien right now. How can the city work to make this happen? Yeah, the, you know, in the last six years or so that I've really been on the ground in Burien, I've seen it come a long way. Uh, there now is interpretation at council meetings regularly. Some of their website is translated. Um, they're doing much better than they were five years ago, but you, we need to double down more, especially right now, because communities of color, especially immigrant and refugees, when it comes to trusting your government, it's it takes building relationships. So uh, we have to double down on that investment, making sure that not just council meetings, but all commission meetings, that all uh, services are provided in those languages, but in-person connecting with those ambassadors in the community and those organizations that are actually on the ground providing services. In Buren, we have Para Los Niños. Uh, we have Colectiva Legal del Pueblo, uh, making sure that we reach and support them both in supporting financing, but also what they're doing directly with community, some of the churches that we have here. Uh, I mean, you have to be really intentional about continuing to provide that because you can't just do it by interpreting once or twice. You really have to be aggressive. And I think that's something that is needed because I I still do it to this day. I, I, my parents, I take them to their healthcare uh, appointments and I interpret because my mom feels just more comfortable knowing that it's her son, right? An interpreter uh, at these places is is great, but it takes building relationships with people, especially immigrants and refugees who, who, where we're coming from histories of not really being, uh, you know, being able to rely on your government. Hugo, I could tell you're a good son. I can just tell by looking at you, man. Thanks, man. <laughs> Takes one to know one since your mom's here also, man. Place your community. She is. I'm Hey, I love it. So, so listen, you know, you when we were preparing for this, you were talking about how you were out knocking doors and you said that what you are hearing from people is not really what you expected. What did you expect to hear and what are some of the things that you're actually hearing? Yeah, you know, um, I thought there would be a heavy focus on public safety and sh shootings and uh, COVID-related inquiries. Like, hey, how how fast or how safe is it? How how safe are these vaccines? Uh, what if I still am worried about? I I was expecting more on COVID and on uh, public safety. I just thought that would be like 80, 90 percent of the conversations. And in fact, it's been the other way around. They do uh, ask about those things, but most of it has been hyper-local uh, issues. I, I like to really, the, if I can get one question across to folks when I knock on their door is, uh, what can I do better to serve here? What is important to your neighborhood and, and to your community here nearby here? So you're getting a lot of, you know, my bus route, I, I, I commute to downtown. It's still partially not operating. I really want to make sure that those buses are consistent, taking that 120 route. Uh, I was impressed by the amount of elder uh, residents. There's a lot of folks uh, over 70. I even knocked on somebody that's over 100 years old. And, uh, she, you know, she let me know. She's like, hey, there's a new ho housing development, market rate housing, townhouses going up here, 30 units across the street from me. Speed, speed bumps and traffic. I'm really concerned with that. Um, so it, it's hyper local to their communities. Some Some folks with children wanted to make sure that that school keep keep getting keeps getting funded, um, and and public safety does come up. You know, uh, like any city uh, across any urban city, you're going to have public safety be an issue, and it's something that here in Buren, it's also a big issue. Uh, over the years, we've had issues with a couple of shootings here and there. And it just 
it ebbs and flows. I Someone that's been here since the 1990s has seen that. And I think ma- making sure that we uh, take this opportunity that we have right now where we're really addressing the impact of uh, what we saw with the George Floyd uh, verdict and, and the Black Lives Matter movement to make sure that we're really intentional about making sure we don't lead with violence when it comes to policing, that we lead with services and a community-based approach. So uh, I'm really excited about the programs that we're looking at the opportunity that we have to set up those kind of programs and build on some of the things that we're doing well in Vieira, like the LEAD program that's been here for a year in the downtown core. It is my deep regret that we are up against the clock already. Uh, I told you when we were preparing that 10 minutes goes by very, very rapidly. And so here we are. Uh, So I will just ask you, how can listeners and viewers help your campaign? Yeah, for sure. So please Please, if you get a chance, follow me, uh, hugoforbeeran.com. A small donation would go a long way. I'm a first-time candidate, and I, I, you know, making sure that you're able to run takes money. I don't make the rules. I just play the game, I guess, is the way to look at it. But I, I want to make sure folks donate to our, our, our campaign. It's so because you're in, investing in Buren, not so much just on me. It's really trying to make sure that our community stays a working, family-friendly community for all. So please follow me on Hugo forbeerin.com. You can follow me like that on Twitter, on Instagram. Uh, and may, uh, soon I'll even set up a next door. That's what folks like to connect on. So yeah, for sure. A small donation and come out and knock doors. We can sign you up. Definitely could use your help. Hugo Garcia. And, and Kat is going to drop that into the chat for everybody. Let's see some hands for Hugo Garcia. Yeah, man. Love <laughs> it. Thank you so much for joining yeah. us. Thank uh, you all. It? Listen, everybody, we have a, a couple of VIPs in the house. Uh, Marcy Maxwell, former representative Marcy Maxwell, our friend, is with us tonight. And as I mentioned, uh, 47th LD Senator Mona Doss is here. She is a resident of Kent, and she was really instrumental in helping us create tonight's amazing lineup of candidates. And so, uh, Mona, if you're ready to speak, everybody sees, uh, show some hands for Mona. Yeah, let's Mona Doss. Wow, it's so amazing to see all of you. I'm just leaving my own fundraiser where many of you were there. So it's lovely to see all of you. I am so incredibly proud of how many amazing candidates are stepping up to run, like Iris and Soleil and Cliff and Don and Hugo, all of the great candidates tonight. I hope I'm not missing anyone. Ruth, I see Ruth. Of course, Marcy Maxwell has paved the way for me. She showed me what it was like to show up um, for others. And so thank you, Marcy, for everything that you've done. I see amazing uh, folks here tonight. I just want to just, I'll just be very brief because I know you're running behind uh, as my event was too. Thank you for running. We need you. Our communities need you. We need different leaders. If we expect different results, we need new leaders. Um, You are the leaders we need. I am so incredibly honored. Um, Don Bennett, you know, mayor of Kent, here she comes. Uh, Cliff, you know, I just thank you for running all of you. I'm just so incredibly impressed with your heart, your passion, your drive, and your ability to put community first. And I think we can all agree that many of the leaders that are here today um, don't put community first. And I believe that these candidates will. And I support all of you, and I am honored to be in your presence. I am honored to be in your orbit. I am honored to support you, and thank you for running. Let's get them elected, everyone. Uh, More hands. 
More more hands for Senator Mona Doss. Uh, that is the pump up speech that I was waiting for, my friend. Thank you so much. That was awesome. That's a little so- motivation for you, Stefan. Did you say motivation? I sure did. Yes, I like that. Good. You should trademark that. <laughs> I just did, actually. <laughs> That's awesome. Thank you, my friend. So uh, next up tonight is Cliff Cawthon. He is an adjunct professor of political science at Bellevue College. He is also an activist, freelance journalist, and proud Kent homeowner. He has worked for housing justice, tenants' rights, workers' rights, and racial justice since moving to Washington in 2014. Hey, that's when I moved to Washington. He received his Master of Arts degree in Human Rights and Political Science from the University of Manchester in the UK, and he is running for Kent City Council in position for, let's welcome Cliff Cawthon. Welcome to you, my friend. Hello. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, First of all, I hope all of you are uh, beating the heat and um, you know, and also, I actually recently got a new job, uh, so I am now, and I know it's going to be about a bit of a mouthful, but pro-housing campaign and strategy manager at, Sightline, at the Sightline Institute. So, um, yep, and I had a lot of community members to back me up, and, you know, I have not had a bad day since I started last week, so sorry, off to a good start. You can't ask for that, you know, if you're not having a yeah, bad day yeah. at work, you're having a good life. That's awesome. Well, congratulations on that. Um, I want to just jump in and, and, so, and talk a, a little bit about your background and why you decided to run. Maybe just take a couple seconds and talk about that. Yeah, well, um, it's simple. Um, well, I have always fought for people because people have always been behind me. And um, I'm going to continue to fight because there's a lot that um, our community deserves. And, you know, Kent is the most diverse city in the state. It is also a working class city. Um, you know, our AMI is uh, l- is lower than the um, area median income for rest- uh, for many places around us. But yeah, at the same time, it's Kent residents that go to work every single day in Seattle, all around the county, then come home every single day and keep that and keep uh, King County and actually the tri county area running. When I was a a workers' rights organizer with Working Washington, um, there were a number of low-wage workers um, that came here, work or, you know, would work at fast food restaurants and other places in King County and say, oh, I live in Federal Way. Oh, you know, I live in Mount Lake Terrace, different places like that. And the reason I decided to step up and run is because I'm looking around at the world around us and I'm looking around at the city of Kent. And quite frankly, we can do better. We need more courageous, progressive leadership. And quite frankly, we need people that reflect the community because I've heard it from so many leaders that, quite frankly, are more badass than myself. Representation matters. It matters in so many ways. So that's why I'm running, because that's I've been I've been a fighter all my life. And that's what I tend to do. I can I intend to fight and I intend to win. I love that. I'm seeing a lot of nodding heads. I'm seeing a lot of snaps, a lot of agreements. Um, so let's just jump in and talk about some of your legislative priorities. Uh, mm-hmm. In that crosscut poll that I referenced earlier, public safety and policing was the number two concern among voters. And I know that you wanted to speak to that. And you talk about uh, reimagining public safety, which is phraseology that I actually really connect to. How do you frame this problem and how do you think we can approach it differently? So. You know, this is probably the both the easiest and hardest question for me to answer because um, it's hard insofar as um, 
as a political science professor, I was talking about institutional racism and the legacy of um, what is Dr. Isabel Wilkerson called caste in our country when it came to our politics. And a big part of that was opening myself up to having to explain to young people or having to help young people work through the fact that men that look like me and more importantly, women and trans folk that look like myself are often brutalized in killed by a system that's supposedly meant to protect them yet was yet was constructed in on a, a basis of not just protecting property but of um of slave catchers of oppressing uh black and brown folks in this country so for me when i talk about reimagining public safety there are many people in our communities that you know, have legitimate safety concerns that I, you know, take seriously. You know, there have been people, um, you know, who have been victims of domestic violence. There are people who um, have been victims of assaults. There are people who, um, you know, have their homes broken into. Yet, at the same time, we have allowed a very few loud conservative voices to really shape the narrative, especially here in Kent. So when I talk about reimagining public safety, I don't want to just think of public safety as a criminal matter, but I want to think of public safety in terms of investing in human resources, uh, sorry, in um, in human beings, investing in community resources, and making sure that at the end of the day, that there is no parent that worries whether where their child's next meal is going to come from in the city of Kent. Yes, that's ambitious, but I want to give a shout out to uh, my compatriot Joe Todd in Renton because I'm going to borrow a phrase that um, he said that I I'm sorry, I've been ripping it off all all, all across Catman, so I'm just going to say it. An over-resourced community is a safer community. That says it all right there. That yes, let, let's just say, call it what it is, right? that there is a racist element when people talk about Kent because Kent is a BIPOC majority city and everyone says it's, oh my God, it's the most crime ridden place in Washington. Oh my goodness. You know, they, we don't, they don't talk about the uh, bustling immigrant uh, owned businesses in Kent. They don't talk about the fact that our school district has over 100 ethnic and uh, national in every single racial group represented. They don't talk about the fact that our young people are brilliant and have gone on to do amazing things, right? But yeah, at the same time, if we look at Bellevue, hell, we even look at Seattle, particularly North Seattle, right? Even though that you'll see, uh, you know, you'll see violent crimes, you'll see property crimes. We don't talk about that area as crime-ridden. The difference is that we focus on wealth and that in those cities that there are some programs that we can use here in Kent, but also we can learn from our neighbors in South King County when it comes to programs in order to help folks get into housing, when it comes to the, to help homeless folks get on their feet to support young homeless people. I was talking to some homeless providers and here in the city of Kent, we do not have a homeless shelter for our youth who are homeless, who have been kicked out of uh, their homes. We don't have a shelter for um, homeless families that have lost their homes due to um, either loss of income, which is a leading source of homelessness, yet at the same time that often when I knock on doors, um, homelessness is the first issue that comes up. So instead of just simply moving them down the road, I ask, you know, I ask my fellow neighbors, like, well, what if we had resources where they could be safe, we could get them housing first and then and get them some dignity 
and then build up resources around them in order to get them jobs, to help them move on with their lives and to get into stable housing. And guess what? In conservative old Kent, they all seem to they all seem to like that. No one's kicked me off their doorstep yet. The reason is, is because it seems like the place in King County, one of the biggest cities in the state, I think six biggest at this point, unless my math is off, that guess what? There are a lot of good people here. So, yeah, that's what I mean when I talk about public. That's what I mean when I say reimagining public safety. Instead of a punitive model that hurts people, let's start healing our, you know, our neighbors. Well, this is also alluding to what you talk about, referred to as housing justice. And I know that um, Don Bennett is going to have uh, quite a bit to say about funding sources and things like that. And so we'll uh, pass the baton to her in just a moment. But um, I also want to talk about, and this is related to to, to some of the things that you've just referenced, uh, community reinvestment or what you refer to as equitable development. What can the city do to make investments in the community more equitable because everything that I'm hearing you say is that the the money is not going to where it needs to be according to need as far as as, as far as we can tell. So <clears throat> the uh, by the way, my apologies. I'm eating a little bit of teriyaki. I'm kind of a guy on the go. So <clears throat> what can I say? I, invest, I inherited that from my grandfather. So <clears throat> excuse me. So anyway, that being said, when it comes to equitable development, um, I just want to put some perspective. Again, we are a BIPOC majority city. We are a city where there are people from all across the world. And when I looked at the list of who got city contracts um, the other day, that it was as white as the driven snow. In fact, when we talk about um, spending local dollars and supporting local small business, we invest money in firms from Oregon from California, from Colorado. There's even someone from Montana and no disrespect Montana. I'm, I'm glad it, I'm sure big sky state, nice. I've never been, but I'll say this, that if it comes to a firm in Montana versus a, um, a unionized uh, firm or a contractor of color here in the city of Kent, I wanna choose city, uh, the city of Kent in uh, that, that contractor, that firm in the city of Kent. More importantly, city council members we're the ones that approve those contracts over 50,000. Over 50,000, we're ones that approve those contracts and put those policies in place. So, and, and that's the issue that when it comes to where the money's going, more often than not, the number of state council members, including my opponent on state council, wants to act like somehow that we have no choice, that there are no people who have the skills here in the city of Kent. I beg to differ. I believe that we can spend our money locally. We can, we can put it in the pocket of BIPOC-owned small businesses. And more importantly, BIPOC uh, small businesses, Black, Indigenous, people of color small businesses, they were hit the hardest by the pandemic. We had a number of small businesses that closed. Our downtown, you know, number of those uh, businesses were decimated and some adapted. And for me, I want to spend the CARES Act money that we're getting that at least as a member of public, I've not seen how it's allocated as of yet. The city council members, again, my opponents, one of them was supposed to be allocating that has not convened a public meeting um, to bring stakeholders to the table. I've not gotten an invite. I don't know, maybe someone else has, but I haven't. So, and I'm not saying I'm that interesting. I'm, I'm just saying, but still, <laughs> your point is that, yeah. But the point <laughs> is, is that if that's the lack of transparency there, then we need to do something new. 
and we need to make sure that we're spending that money to build up small, especially BIPOC women in immigrant-owned businesses, create our own international district. Think about that. In the city of Seattle, that has gentrified almost the entire Black population of the central area out into the southern suburbs of King County into South Seattle and has pretty much decim you know, has confined the Internet, the Chinatown International District to, um, you know, and I mean, it's a larger historical process, but to a smaller area in the city of Kent, where many folks have relocated for one reason or another, in many cases, largely due to displacement and rising housing prices. We don't have an international district. We don't even market or promote our immigrant-owned businesses. That makes no sense. For the most ardent business-first conservative, what sense does it make not to market our most valuable assets, our people? Yet we spend money on a show, showware center that just, you know, we may as well burn, uh, you know, a couple million dollars every single year. And I'll get the official figures of that, but it's losing money. So what sense does that make? Well, you know, and, and this obviously is a conversation that I wish we had lots and lots of time for. Uh, and unfortunately, again, we're bumping up against the clock. We're a little bit over at this point. But I will just point out to people, if they go to your website, they can learn more about some of your priorities. Uh, you certainly want to uplift low-wage workers um, food access and security, transportation for all. You've gotten a ton of really, so, really strong endorsements. Stephen, yes, sir. Can I just say one thing? Because I don't worry, really trust please. me, I love the praise, but I do want to be very clear about this, folks. And no disrespect to my fellow compatriots around the county, that Kent has an entrenched, you know, I think probably the worst, um, you know, the worst entrenched group of um, you know, people in power I've seen is maybe in SeaTac, you know, shout out to you, Iris and Jake for your run. But in Kent, we have an entrenched group of uh, people who have been in power for a long time who are Republicans. So that means that we need every one of your dollars. We need each and every one of you to come out on canvas. Hell, I'm going to I'll try to fly you out myself if you're not here in Washington right now that the work that we are doing, registering people to vote and knocking on every single door is reversing a tautology that has been around and people have accepted for a long time where people only think white people, older white folks, no disrespect to my older sisters and brothers here on this, um, on this video, but y'all know what I'm saying. The expectation is only older white people vote here in Kent and largely people of color, younger people, families are ignored. So this is going to be a fight. Go to www.cliffforkent.com, cliff, the number four, kent.com, because each one of your dollars goes to putting a foot on the ground, knocking on a door, and getting a vote. Because we can't, we can't lose. About 223 people uh, died the other day or were, went to a hospital the other day to heat exhaustion. Two died. And the mayor of Kent had to be dragged, called out on Twitter in order to open some cooling centers and they weren't even 24 hours. I want you all put that, just think about that. Well, thank you for that. And and certainly, I, and I will just stress this for every candidate on the uh, the panel tonight, uh, we are absolutely going to spend a couple moments at the very end and let uh, you tell people exactly what you need in your campaign and where people can go. And so Cliff has done just that. And Kat, I believe, has dropped the link into the chat bar. Uh, so Cliff, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, let's see some hands for Cliff Cawthon. 
Also, shout out to Mayor Don Bennett. Well, she's Future coming Mayor. up right next. So, uh, so well, you, you, you've given me the perfect segue. So, uh, Don Bennett has had a long career in community advocacy and activism, working for Seattle Public Schools and the Seattle Parks Department. She's also vice, to pre- vice president of Washington's Paramount Duty, and she is running for mayor of Kent. Don Bennett, hello. How are you tonight? Well, hello. Hello. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for getting me here. I know it's a lot of work to get Don Bennett to where Don Bennett needs to be, but you did all the work, Stephen. Thank you so much. Well, you're here. You showed up. So you really did the hard work. So thank um, you. Well, let's start here. Tell us a little bit more about your background than what I just laid out and why it's led you to run for office. So listen, when you have a background that includes Idis Guzman and and Marcy Maxwell, you know, you you have to do some really good work, right? You just have to. So for a long time, I was following Representative, uh, now retired uh, Representative Marcy Maxwell around. And some of the time she didn't know it, sometimes she did. And I think she just turned around and said, I'm just, I'm just going to go ahead and just mentor you, whatever you're trying to do. I'm just going to go ahead and then tell you some things and mentor you. And, uh, and, and, she, and she did that. I, you know, a lot of folks in Kent want to know where I have been. I have been in, in Olympia. I've, Marcy can tell you I've been in Olympia. I've been everywhere trying to fix this black and brown problem of folks just throwing us in jail and kicking us out of school. Because of that, because of those two major reasons, a whole bunch of other stuff came up about the needs in our city. And it's not only black and brown folks, it is not. Because once you start running into some of the problems of black black and brown, it it seeps into other communities and makes us all just have to stand up and and help. And so that's why I'm running running for, for to be Kent Mayor. I was also a basketball coach for 20 years. And yeah, right, Ter- Terry knows I was in there with white, brown, black kids that these kids wanted things to be right. And they were looking at me and the head coach, Tanya Washington. They're like, how do you fix this? And I'm like, I'm, I'm going to go see. And every single step in coaching, education, advocacy, working with young men who don't have the same access to prosperity as others. And so they end up calling them gangbangers, which is, by the way, everybody, this that's a racist term, everybody. Don't call our kids gangbangers. They're a bunch of kids who made their own prosperity. And by the way, while they were doing that, somebody threw some guns in our community. I don't know who nobody will say, but I, they didn't have the money to, to buy all that artillery. But let me tell you, in our community, there's artillery now. And that has made its way to Kent. I spent 20 years on the streets. Marcy knows I spent 20 years on the streets, standing in front of guns, trying to get our kids, throwing them back in school. Let me tell you, when I threw them back in school, it each knows, you throw them back in school, black men, they just get tossed right back out because the, the schools are not ready for our young people to be as brilliant as they are. And so it ends up being you know, a, an argument between the leadership and the teachers and our young people who love their culture. So we have ended up in this mess. And so then I end up in the city of Kent for 23 years. And I tell folks this all the time. I was going, leaving my house, going down the hill and every, every single day going to Seattle to do my work with young people who are struggling in the streets um, doing this craziness. I would look at that, the biggest house in Kent, which is a jailhouse. And I oftentimes think about the strategies to throw our kids in there. And so it takes people like me in leadership to say, Let's cut that out and let's do something else, right? Because our leadership, black and brown and beige and white folks too, 
have been begging for change. Marcy is from Rainier Beach High School. She is out there begging. For, she, I'm like, girl, let's go. Whatever you want me to do. But when you go and you knock on doors and you go to folks who are privileged and you ask for help, who's going to open the door? You got to think about that. You have to think, I'm trying to ask the folks who want us to be in this predicament for help. Hmm. We better change this up a little bit. I do. I did see some representatives and some senators out there that wanted to help, but now there are people of color who have talked to these children, have helped these children, live with these children. My nephew right now is struggling in a prison for a small, small thing, right? We have to change things. So if you're going to leadership that are oppressive and you're knocking on the door of people who are oppressing you, what do you think they're going to, you think they're going to open it? They're going to be like, that was a nice knock. Now knock better next time. We got you. I'm tired of that. I know Marcy's tired of that. I know Elise is going to be tired. Now I know Terry is tired of that because I was right in front of her daughter, right, talking my mess. And I was like, I can't just keep talking mess and working for free because, by the way, folks, I did do three years of my organization. I worked for free because going for the dollars, going for the dollars, there's also a mess, a racial mess there too. And who gets funded, who gets grant is not, is not folks that look like us to help our own children. So there's a lot of, I can go on and on and on about the reason to run for mayor in Kent, the most BIPOC city in the state of Washington, number eight in the nation. There's, that's something to brag about. And I don't see our, our leadership bragging about that. They're not, they don't, it's, it's a secret. I don't think they want to talk about it, but it's time to talk about it. And I have my running mate Cliff Cock on there that he just yells it from the rooftop that we are going to brag about it because you know, multicultural multiculturalism is a blessing. It is not a curse. Can I just express my gratitude to you right now for uh, what you just said? Because when you and I hopped on the phone the other day in preparation for this, <laughs> you, you get all you get all the gratitude, Don, because really, when we first started talking, you hit on all of those themes and then said, yeah, but what I really want to talk about are my top three priorities. And I'm hoping that we can get to them. But what you yeah. said was just so impactful, so yeah. important. So thank you. Thank you for getting to all of that. Um, let's see if we can touch on some of these. We have five minutes left. Um, the first thing that you said you wanted to discuss was tackling the COVID response. And, you know, as uh, I believe it was Cliff was mentioning, municipalities are going to see funding coming from the federal government. So I'll just ask you first and foremost, how are you going to make sure that Kent gets its fair share of those dollars? So Biden signed the American Rescue Plan. Dollars are falling to municipalities. There's Dollars are falling to the state. There's falling to the county. It's really important that we have a plan to partner with our counties. We have a plan to say, we are going for those grants also. And so I would do all I can to make sure that Kent gives as much as they can because of who we are, right? We have to go for some, some of those dollars. Um, that's just my only answer. We have to get a piece of the American sure. rescue plan because that's, that's a big chunk of money to uh, have some solutions when it comes to uh, the COVID-19 response. And I do have to say, everyone knows the data that there's, you know, some, there's some discrimination in there also, right? And in order to call that out, we need leadership that looks like those who are getting discriminated against. We don't need leadership who are like, no, it's not happening. Well, yes, it is, right? And so we have to, you know, have leadership that's, by the way, 
we have been going through it really bad, so we need a piece of those dollars. We're going for it. And how would you like to see this money equitably distributed and spent? Well, first I would start with our seniors. Our seniors are really struggling right now through this COVID. We need services to our seniors of color like no business in, in Kent. Right now, some of them are in some, in, in some, uh, some housing situations where they're not, they're not being seen, right? And so a lot of it will go to um, funding some of this, uh, giving some resources to, to seniors, seniors first in Kent because we have a large community of seniors in Kent. And I didn't want them, I don't want them to be missed just because I'm a mayor of color. I want all seniors in Kent to, to be uh, served because we need what their knowledge about Kent. We need to be led by our seniors. I was led by my grandmother and my mother and they were phenomenal. I thought I didn't need to go, go to college. They were so smart, but then I, I had to. But you know, mostly um, the, the seniors and then you know, we, would, we would have to, we must go the homeless. Right. What they're going through right now with our weather, with COVID, you know, you got to put your eyes on the most important things. And like Cliff was saying, it's humanity, our most vulnerable. You when we were talking about the housing issue, you talked about the need to partner with other cities in King County. Um, can you elaborate on that just a little bit? I did. Uh, so the, so at East and I, we work with homeless folks together. Right. And we know good and well that homelessness doesn't stay in one city. Right. They go from city to city. They're trying to find a place where they can get resources, where they can find their way. We have tiny houses coming up. That's from city to city. So I talked about um, partnering with other cities to be aligned in what we're doing. The county will be the lead and we city, we municipalities will get in place to say we're going to do this all together. If the right folks are winning, we can be aligned in, in fixing the problem because the poor is all that's also a community that's discriminated against. And we mostly, most of the people of color who are trying to, we know that story. We know that some double work has to happen. And if the right people win, we can align in the work and connect the work from city to city and make sure that we're all talking about the same sort of work with the homeless. So the homeless don't go from one city and then lose lose resources and then have to start all over in another city and then, then have to get kicked out of that city. I don't think our leadership in Kent even want homeless people there. I'm like, what, well, what are you going to do? Like, we have to align with other cities because they're walking through all cities. They don't know the boundaries, nor do they care. And so neither should we. We have to make sure we pay attention to the, to the pots, um, the, the money, the resources that each city has and use them respectfully. We unfortunately are running so short on time and I knew that this was going to happen tonight and I knew that there were going to be so many more things that I was going to want to speak with each of you about. But I'll just ask you very briefly, you've gotten a number of very high profile endorsements. Are there one or two that are particularly meaningful to you? Well, you know, I just got fused today. I got fused today. Hey, and nice. you know, I, I, woohoo, shout out to fuse. I, you know, I, there's a lot that I do know. And there's a lot of work that I have done in my 40 years of working with human beings. I don't know a lot about the environment. And they were like, listen, girl, we need you to read. I said, I will. I sure will, because I'm hot. I'm burning hot. I'm burning hot. And so I, I'm, I didn't think I was going to get it. And, and there were some things that they liked about me. And then there's some things that I need to work on. And I will. Um, the other one is, oh, my goodness, I got all of the LDs. 
I got the uh, the thirty third. I got the the forty seventh. I got the what's what's the other one? I, I got all of them. And thank you to, for all the voters. Um, those those all stood out for me because that was a that was that was a fight in the King County Dems. Like all of them, all of them. Listen, folks have a a, a hold on South King County like no other. And we are out here battling. We are battling. And thank you for to people, white white folks like Terry and white folks like Marcy Maxwell, who are like, we're battling with you. Let's go. And so that's so helpful. And it brings the power into the room, it brings power to the fight. And it's going to push us over the edge. And it feels really good because the whole is fighting for righteousness. And so all of the LDs, oh, oh, that was that was some oh, ask Cliff. I was just like, I'm <laughs> I'm cussing today. I'm gonna cuss today. And so I think. Everybody who pushed that through, uh, it was a team of us who were like uh, taking care of one another. And, uh, you know, all of it is just feeling really good. No matter what the outcome, we are bringing some things to the forefront to talk about. And it's not we're not going to stop talking about it. Very, very briefly, uh, just talk about what listeners and viewers can do to help your campaign. And I believe Kat has dropped your uh, your your URL in there, which is dawnformayor.com. So that is for people who are listening right now. How can listeners and viewers help your campaign right now? So right now we're running two, two, two to one in fundraising. We are behind. We are not ahead. We're, we're behind. They are, they're raising some money because, of course, they do not want this to happen. They do not want me to win. So the, mon- the, com- the money is coming through. I need, I need dollars. I need those who can donate to donate. I also need folks, we got yard signs, come get the yard signs and put them all over Kent, please. They got big posters up. I, they're just paying for all kinds of things. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to hit doors. And so I would welcome everyone to sign up on my website to volunteer. Um, and also donations. We, we, need, we need to catch up. We need to close that gap when it comes to funding. We don't have a lot of it. I, I am a person who has been grassroots my whole career and in my fundraising it's showing and and, and i'm i'm fine with it because i'm like i know we don't have a lot of money but we need folks to give now it's time it's time for don to ask so thank you so much for this opportunity well don is asking and we know that people out there will answer the call don bennett thank you thank you so much you're you're, you're wonderful it's, it's been wonderful speaking with you uh, we're going to move on to Edith Guzman right now. She has lived in SeaTac for almost 14 years and has worked in the area for almost five years. She has been in the social services field since 2000 and has been a social worker since 2006. She moved to the Seattle area in 1997, where she pursued a degree at Seattle University in applied sociology and her master's in social in social work from the University of Washington. She is running for SeaTac City Council in position six. Everybody, please welcome Edith Guzman. How are you tonight? Hello, hello. I am doing well. Thank you, Stefan. Uh, shout out to all my peeps on here. Don, Don keeps I throw my name out there. We did work together and it was some deep, intense work. And Don can tell you all about it another time because that was a party. It was, yeah, it was a lot. Um, yeah, so good to see everybody. Um, as mentioned, I am a social worker right now, currently actually uh, for the Highline Public Schools. I am first generation to be born in this country. Both of my parents are from Mexico. I share a lot of similarities to Ugo in that I grew up having to be the interpreter and kind of the adult in my household with my mom, who was actually undocumented until 2016, 2016. 
So that's like within this decade. And so I grew up with a lot of um, that in my family. I'm just worrying about it constantly. When I moved to Seattle, I was the first person in my family to go to college. So I had no clue what I was doing. Um, over time, you know, I always knew that I wanted an education. I always thought it was like the gateway to something better. And now that I've lived here in SeaTac for 14 years and worked here for almost five years, I've learned a lot, probably more um, through this job and through my other jobs than I probably ever did in the classroom. I'll just put that out there. Um, but I also am very proud of my accomplishments in terms of my college degrees because they were not handed to me and they did not come easy. So a lot of times I've had people say, oh, well, I didn't have to get that piece of paper. And it's like, oh, I wish it was just a piece of paper. That'd be cool. <laughs> no, it's more than a piece of paper. It's kind of a little more. <laughs> yeah. well, well, listen, everything that you are saying right now, being first generation, uh, being a social worker, which you say has made you very attuned to the needs of BIPOC, immigrant, refugee, undocumented, working families in SeaTac. How do you see that informing policy decisions, say, uh, on the city council? For me, the biggest thing that I see that is really lacking, and it was kind of what Uwe mentioned a little bit, but it really is just accessibility. I think a lot of our immigrant and refugee community members do not feel welcomed in the city of SeaTac within the city hall and council meetings um, due to language barriers, but then also just to, due to cultural differences. We have a number of current city council members who are xenophobic, who are racist, who really wish that we would all just go away. They really believe that they are the true original inhabitants of this area, not recognizing at all that we are on stolen land, not recognizing that as immigrants and refugees, it's a natural part of human migration um, and really just behaving as if if they just wished us away, uh, we would go. And so that's something that uh, as a child of immigrant parents, as somebody who works in the community and connects, especially a lot with our Latinx and BIPOC residents, I know that not only are we not going away, but we're what makes this area strong and vibrant. 100% agreed. I mean, the, I, I, I'm i a huge believer that our diversity is our strength. But, you know, when we were talking in preparation for this, one of your big goals is to fund a human services department in SeaTac in order to uh, serve a lot of these needs. Uh, apparently, this is now uh, placed under Parks and Rec, which means it has very limited funding. What if you could talk about the importance of having a human resources or human, human services rather department and how you would work to fund that on city council? Yeah, so something that's really key, and I want to just let people know, you know, I am a social worker, so I definitely always come from that perspective of how can we help people, like, get the most bang for our buck. And so the Human Services Department is very vital in a lot of ways that people probably don't see. We do what I call a lot of the invisible work. We do the background work. So a Human Services Department, a vibrant, well-funded Human Services Department would include mental health resources, housing resources, um, rental assistance, as well as just even creating a bridge to home ownership, a pathway to that, because that's something else that I recognize in our communities um, we don't have access to, but is desperately needed. And then it also would create programming for our young people, for our seniors, um, that could include access to um, internships, for example, for our young people. That's a program that I came from when I worked with Dawn and just seeing how it changed lives. Senior programming is also very vital. Um, when I've been door knocking, most of our residents are elders and the things that they need and the way they need to feel connected, they're not feeling that right now. Um, as far as funding, I would look at federal funding, county funding, because I know King County has money available that they can tie into 
SeaTac and then South King County specifically. Um, and then just looking at our actual budget, I was actually reading the the um, 21-22 SeaTac budget just to see where the money's going and just trying to get a sense of like how we can reallocate funds. I want to talk also briefly about the issue of policing because it does relate to, to the funding issue. Um, SeaTac Council voted not to renew King County Sheriff's contract, and there has been a push by the city council to create a private police force in SeaTac. You very much take issue with this. I wonder if you could talk about why. I absolutely do. I think um, the biggest thing for me is that our police department needs to be held accountable in a wider way. And if you become, if you take the contract away from King County and bring it down to just the city level, then only the council would be overseeing it and only the mayor would be overseeing it and the mayor would select who gets hired, who the, you know, um, sheriff gets to be or whoever gets to be in charge. And if you know anything about the mayor and SeaTac, that person is very conservative. Um, they are the part of the group that I listed as being racist and xenophobic and anti-immigrant. And so what I know for a fact would happen is that then it's going to harm our communities of color even more so. It's not going to bring the resources and the safety that people claim. It's going to, if anything, become the mayor and her her little group of people. It's going to become their little um, lackeys. It's going to be everything that why police were created, a police force was created in this country to begin with. And so for me, I am definitely against that because the funding can be used better and more wisely. Um, keeping the contract with King County, we can add additional um, caveats in terms of asking that we have a citizen oversight committee instead of, you know, the internal investigations that happen. We could shift some of the funding away, say, from an SRO to community mental health um, officers instead or uh, social workers or partnering with our nonprofits in the area that can provide those resources that are badly needed in our community. Yeah, we know there are a lot of different models on the table right now, and it's good to be considering all of them, quite frankly. Um, and, you know, I'll just ask you, because we talked about this as well. You've been out doing, hitting the doors, doing a lot of door knocking. What else are you hearing from people in terms of what is top of mind for residents in SeaTac? Well, you know, it's interesting because um, kind of like the other South King County cities, we do have a lot of older white residents. And a lot of what I'm hearing is not what I expected. I thought it would be around safety. Also, I thought it would be around like, oh, we need more police. And it hasn't entirely been that. It's really been just like, how do we, you know, provide better transportation services? How do we provide food security for our residents? And then the biggest is how do we provide affordable housing? And that's something that I know um, currently, the city of SeaTac isn't focusing on. Instead, they're giving private developers 10-year tax breaks um, and pushing out small businesses and not trying to maintain the heart of uh, what SeaTac is. And so for me, um, when I'm door knocking, you know, just hearing the different perspectives, but then also just understanding that we can maintain the SeaTac that it how it is now and move it forward together as something positive, um, as something strength based, and making sure that our older residents, our long term residents, as well as our new residents, don't get pushed out, and everybody does have a sense of community. Soleil Lewis uh, has some very interesting things to say about this this disparity in in, in representation, um, and I will we'll get to her in just a moment. And, and by the way, I will say I, I recognize that we're running late, and I will just say to both Soleil and Joe, thank you for your patience. We'll get to you very, very shortly. I just want to wrap up by saying um, 
uh, or, or asking you rather, Edis, you've gotten a number of endorsements, but you told me when we talked that you especially highlighted the endorsements of SeaTac City Council members to Kayla Gobina and Sunay Nagusi. Can you talk about the importance of those uh, endorsements to you? And I'm sorry if I if, if I mangled those names. I apologize. That's okay. Yeah. So it's uh, Tkale, um and Sunay. Yeah. So it's important to me to get the two progressive council members to support me because it it helps me realize that we need to flip our the council and that we need to work in this together. So they're reaching out to me and supporting me shows that they're ready to be team players and they're ready to help move our priorities forward. And so that to me was extremely valuable and I really appreciate that. Well, so before we let you go, uh, let us know what your campaign can can use right now. Well, I know everyone's saying money, so I'm not going to say that because that's just the given. Um, one thing that I want to acknowledge is that we are a slate of people, of BIPOC candidates. And as has already been mentioned, a lot of us are doing grassroots um, campaigning, and a lot of us are new to this. I think all of us maybe are the first timers for this. And with that said, the reason why you don't see this often is because there's so many hurdles and barriers to get to this, that if we don't get the support by all of our progressive folks, and especially our white progressive um, allies out there, then we're not going to make it because these doors open few and uh, far between for a reason. And the fact that there's so many of us running in all these different cities, like, please show up for us. Like, do more than just say, oh, that's great. Like, really show up in whatever capacity you can, whether it's financially, host a fundraiser, show up um, with five of your friends to door knock for us, phone bank, like, just really put your money where your mouth is. That's probably, like, the most honest thing I can say. Kat, I hope that you took track of the, took note of the time there, because that is the trailer uh, for this episode as we begin to send it out into the world. What perfect words to leave it on. Edis Guzman, thank you so much. And we, well, actually, let's give some hands to uh, to Edis. That was wonderful. Thank you. Uh, next up is Soleil Lewis, and she holds a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science from the University of Washington. She has worked as a kindergarten teacher and then office manager for Highline Public Schools, and she currently teaches ESL to students living and working in South King County. She also works with the Seattle King County and Vancouver NAACP to promote diversity and inclusive education across Washington State. And she is running for Des Moines City Council in position seven. Soleil, thank you so much for being here again. Thank you for waiting. We really appreciate having you here tonight. Gosh, I'm, I'm humbled. So it's no big stress for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you know, as, as I mentioned, um, on your website, you talk about the need for more transparency and accountability in local government. And you believe that the problem is compounded by low voter engagement within the city. Can you talk about some of those numbers? Gosh, I'd love to. Um, I live in a city of 31,792 people. But of that 31,792, there's only 18,800 registered voters. Um, but more significantly than that, in an off-year election like this, it's actually 3,400 that will vote in any 2019 or any odd-year election like 2021. So when you think about those numbers, what that means is that when you tie it into the fact we have 31,792 people who live here, um, the breakdown does not reflect the true voter representation of everyone in the community voting. And one thing I have noticed is from talking to people on the ground is that, you know, the biggest issue in my community has been mail theft. So when you put the pieces together, there have been moments where people have told me for two, three years they haven't gotten their ballots. 
Um, and so it also reflects in the 3,400 that that breakdown is majority 55 plus and also older and wider. But the percentage of people in my city actually are 65.6% people of color. And why that matters personally, because I am a person of color, but moreover, when you look at the dynamics of voter turnout, and if you have 65.6% who are in the majority, yet you only have the 3,400 that are coming from those who are 55 plus and older and wider who are in the minority, that says that our city is really at a pinnacle point where if that doesn't change, the total representation of my city will never be manifested. The biggest thing that I can see too is that that 65.6% of people of color that live in Des Moines also live in areas that make up the majority by square mile. So there's 4,888 people per square mile and Des Moines is 6.4 square miles. But where I live in near Redondo, South to 60th and North Hill, those communities actually make up the majority Yet, when you look at the population at large and you see that there's such a low voter turnout, it can change if we motivate those groups that are living in those communities and that are 4,888 people per square mile and that make up the largest in per, per population density. So that is really the biggest thing of what I can see is that if we get those individuals motivated and engaged, that can flip the whole council. And that can actually mean representation because we've had decisions that are being made currently where you have taxation without representation. And also when it comes to just equity in mind, there was a 3.6% sales use tax. But my population, again, is almost, almost 32,000 people and a 3.6% sales tax on a population that only point, so only 12% of the total population actually shop downtown at a 3.6% sales tax with no vote, no ballot initiative that was ever given to anyone in the community also reflects that there's, there's been taxation without representation and that the assumption is that people will never know about it. But I'm running to change that. So. If you don't mind, I would just like to uh, reiterate those numbers. Out of 32,000, almost 32,000 registered voters, only 18,000, out of 30, uh, uh, 32,000 residents, 18,000 registered voters, the average vote is 3,400. The consistent voter is over 55 and white and not representative of the total population. The population is much younger and of color, about 66% BIPOC. And as you say, there's an issue with male theft, um, taxation without representation indeed. So I, I guess th my, my question would be, what would you like to how can we mobilize really to get more people engaged in the community and, and 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 starting to engage in the electoral process do you think biggest thing i've seen you know very humbly i say this is when i knock on people's doors you know they tell me that i've lived here 23 years i've lived here 53 years and no one's ever knocked on my door until you came so it really is about making sure that we change the current council structure from a trustee delegate situation where I've learned from knocking on people's doors and hearing that, that I am their delegate. And that is how we can directly impact and motivate and engage people to come out to vote. Because if we keep the trustee delegate situation where the current council operates, where you have to come to them. You have to know somebody. You have to know someone who knows the city manager. It's about who you know. And that only is reflective of the 30% of the total population. But the 70% that live in Des Moines are left at a standstill. 
where there has to be someone like myself actually going out to them to talk to them, to engage with them, and to tell them that a trustee delegate situation will not work, especially with the fact that it will not create any revenue for the city. It hasn't been, and it's not working, and that's why the viability of me as a candidate shows that by actually going and knocking on doors and speaking to people where they are. Make it a pocketbook issue. Absolutely right. And you you also, I will just add on your website, say you propose educating uh, constituents with free weekend classes in local government. I love that. That is fantastic. Uh, as, as a poli-sci major, that is, that is a perfect innovation. You also said something very interesting to me when we spoke. You said the number, and I want to make sure that I'm getting this right. You said the number of women in the workforce in the city of Des Moines is very low. I believe you said 28% and that almost none has union representation. I found those figures to be jaw-dropping. Can you talk about the impact of that? Oh gosh, I think the biggest thing I can say about that is it's very disheartening because it's very hypocritical of me to go into work as a preschool special education teacher and to teach majority of my classes who have a lot of young girls and look at them in their eye and tell them that they can be anything that they want to be Yet I live in a city where there's only, there's 28% of the women workforce who do not have union representation. And what that means is that if let's say they take medical leave or let's say that they take maternity leave, that 28% of women working in my city will could get fired. And also too, based off of the fact of the salary wages, they're paid about $1,000 less compared to their male counterparts that are, there's a small percentage that are unionized, but the majority of women though do not have that representation. So I feel that is also why it's, that that's the same reason of the push of why I'm running is because of the fact that if I'm a woman running for council and I live in a city where there's no union representation and I'm a union member, and there's women that could really lose their job if they say the wrong things. There's been cases after cases with the current city manager where anyone who questions him has you know, basically gotten the ax. And because of the fact that those women were not union representation, it's a, a harder fight in court right now for them to get the due representation that they need and to be truly, truly reflective of really what their experiences are and where they need the representation needed with a union, which is not happening right now in the city. So uh, I just want to make sure I understand a city council can impact the situation by hiring, uh, by firing the current city manager and hiring a better city manager, right? Correct. Yes. Oh, yes. For sure. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, so one other thing that I want to mention that uh, you said so, so many striking things to me. Um, when I asked you why you were running, you, you talked about the impact of fear in your community. And that really struck me. Can you expand on that for people? Oh yeah, for sure. For me, um, as a woman of color living in Des Moines, but also for those who are not people of color, I've knocked on doors and just multiple doors in my community. And they always say to me, be careful. The people who are, who are you know, white and older will tell me, be careful. And I ask them why, and they say, well, after this time period, the police do not come until three hours later. And there are crimes that happen in this community where I don't even feel safe living here, but I know that's just the way it is in my city. But then the flip side of that is that for people of color who live in Des Moines, they also say, be careful. And when they say, be careful, they say it because they say to me, well, I'm hesitant to take your yard sign. I'm hesitant to take your flyer because my neighbors, I'm afraid that my neighbors may retaliate against me. 
but just even taking your yard sign and then me having this conversation with you. And I just want to live my day to day life and just be careful because there are people around here who they might be more conservative. And, you know, we just don't want any friction for us as people of color living. So when I heard all of that, you have to have a candidate who can speak to that fear because too many times when you live in a community like the community I live, everything is in a situation where everything is suppressed. After a while, people start to disengage and they start to believe that nothing will ever change. And for me, I believe that it's possible because I'm the one running right now in a race where you have to have a delegate and who can speak to that fear because I've gotten over the point of suppression and feeling that no one can really hear um, my voice or people, like I said, the trusty delegate situation where you have to know some know somebody. I don't care at this point. I'm a lifelong resident and I believe that there has to be delegates that are fearless like myself who are willing to put their life on the line in a sense to fight for their community, but not in an angry way, but in a sense of purpose and long-standing goals. That is the reality of my running in the morning. So well, I mean it's it's extraordinary everything that you said and 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 you know we it's um I, I kind of just need to take a moment to just process everything <laughs> you said, uh, honestly. Um I appreciate your bravery. I I appreciate you stepping up. Um so thank you. Um I as I mentioned uh, when we were talking earlier, you are reaching an audience of very, very active, very involved, um, often very generous uh, uh, people out there. What do you need help with in your campaign? Well, the biggest thing I need help with, I would say, is just making sure that I can get door knockers to just come and door knock in these neighborhoods. Because like I said, the mail theft, people's ballots are getting stolen, people's checks are getting stolen, and that's been going on for years. And I want to make sure that when people have, we have door knockers available so that when people know to vote, they can vote um, and know that August 3rd is the primary, please come out to vote. And I think if we can get and we can push through that threshold because we have a high percentage of people of color living here, but also people who are not people of color who have lived here for years and are frustrated. Um, if we can push to that number in those groups, I feel like that'll push me over the finish line. So um, that's kind of where I need a lot of help is door knocking and donations help too. So I, on both fronts, I'm really in that mindset. So, <laughs> Well, so in order to get in touch and for the people who are listening, both on the podcast and on terrestrial radio, uh, spell your website for us, please. Okay. S-O-L-E-I-L-L-E-W-I-S.com. S-O-L-E-W-I-S.com. Yeah, Soleil Lewis. Well, Soleil Lewis, it has been such a pleasure. It's been uh, wonderful getting to know you and, and really wonderful talking with you tonight. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate you. And, and, and then finally uh, joining us, and again, thank you for your patience, is Joseph Todd. He is Deputy Chief Technology Officer at King County. Before that, he served as CIO of the city of Tukwila, Head of Application Development and Collaboration at Alaska Airlines, and Senior Manager of Enterprise Collaboration and, and Application Integration at Boeing. He has also 20 years of experience as a technology innovator and leader, including a background accelerating the modernization and delivery of IT services in aerospace, software development, systems integration, enterprise collaboration, local government, and techno, uh, technology innovation I honestly, I, I, I'm out of breath reading all that. It's just incredible. He is running for Renton City Council in position one. Joseph Todd, thank you so much for being here tonight, man. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.
Well, so listen, um, you have a very compelling personal story where you talk about how service is kind of in your DNA. What if you could talk a little bit more about that and why that led you to run for public office? So just quite frankly, um, I'm from Mobile, Alabama. Um, I'm from the place where civil rights started, where the button was pushed that for the United States, we have got to engage and really look at how uh, black folks are being treated across the country. My, my dad was part of SNCC. He marched with Dr. King. I was put to bed with stories about the Edmund Pettus Bridge. Um, my brothers and sisters, um, they, they spent time in the armed forces. My sister is a school teacher now. I've got cousins that spent time in the armed forces. So service is in our DNA. I'm a public servant. Service is in my DNA. And one of the biggest things that you'll see is Whenever you engage as a community member against people that are trying to gatekeep and keep things the same, the first thing they'll want to do is just um, try to come up with reasons why things can't change. And so if anybody can see the things that happened when George Floyd was murdered, George Floyd was murdered on national television. If you didn't see that event and totally understand that something has to change, then I, I, I can't help you. When that event happened, I moved into action. I started working with um, the Written Residents for Change is a group that we started with um, some other community members within the community and we started advocating. We started talking about what can we do to make things different for the Written community members. And we started talking to council and we started teaching uh, community members how to show up at council meetings and how to write emails and how to how to advocate right and what we found was a lot of gatekeeping not listening want to continue on with the status quo and for me that's when i made the decision in my mind of you know my my roots the way i grew up what i want to bring to community i want to change i want to i want to remove gatekeepers right i want to put people in position i want to get into a position where I can speak for the vulnerable. I can talk for uh, marginalized communities that, that don't have a voice. Renton has a terrible, terrible um, uh, way of only listening to a narrow set of voices. We need to broaden that set of voices that talk about what happens in our community. I mean, I can tell you as growing up in Mobile, Alabama, you wouldn't think in the 90s, I was asked, my, my parents were actually asked to segregate an academy school. And if people don't know what academy schools are, they're actually designed to make sure that um, black and white kids didn't go to school together. And my sister and I were put into that school to, to help change things. And we were subjected to some of the worst racism you could ever imagine. I'm talking about nooses in locker rooms, I'm talking about teachers and administration devaluing you as a, as a human being. Um, people calling you names. And the reason why that still hurts me because it's that trauma. It's that, it's, that, it's that trauma that continues to live to this day. And for me, I am running because I want to change those things. I want to make sure that voices are heard and, and gatekeeping is not happening in our community. And, and that's the reason why I'm here. Again, I just need to kind of take a moment. Um, I know that words really don't, um, they're not adequate, honestly. Um, I, I, I will say that I am so desperately sorry for what you've been through. 
Um, I will say that I'm very grateful that uh, you are here in Washington. Uh, we are, are just, uh, yeah, we, we are all the richer because you are here. Listen, um, there are a number of things that we were going to uh, talk about here. And I, and honestly, you, you're, you're, you're up last and I'm happy to, to guide you through some of the things that we talked about. And we certainly, we can talk about homelessness and drug addiction. We can talk about housing. We can talk about public safety. We can talk about all of those things. I'm inclined to just give you the floor, um, for the remainder of, of your six or seven minutes and, and talk about whatever you'd like to talk about. If, if that suits you. Uh, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest things that people aren't paying attention to is the experience that black folks have with police. Um, we always get this engagement that, well, you know, if you just would have listened or if you just would have complied, things would have been, things would have been okay. Right. And it's not, and it's because we are policed differently than everybody else. And that's why I truly believe if we're going to have successful police departments in communities, they have to be accountable to the community. They have to have committees that if someone reports a police officer for abuse, then the, the community should be doing an investigation on that abuse, not some other agency that comes along and basically, once again, gatekeeps and says it's okay for the police department to do what they, had, do what they did. Because that's what happens. Um, another agency will show up. They'll do an investigation, they'll rubber stamp whatever happened, and everybody will move on and act like nothing happened within, uh, with that abuse or with that complaint. Um, the other thing, as you'll see, is we really aren't paying attention to our homelessness, our homeless community members. Our homeless community members are just as important to our community as those who have homes. We have to be looking out for them, and, we all, and all cities have to do their part. We can't say like, oh, we're going to reduce the, like the city of Renton did. We can't say we're going to reduce the capacity for the number of people that can be in a shelter. And we can't say that we're not going to uh, work with King County in, as, an, as a group and try to approach this problem we have with homelessness reasonably wide, right? All 39 cities working with King County to really do something that could be impactful across the region. But instead, we hit the eject button and said, oh, we're going to go off on our own. We're going to collect a tax, and obviously we can do better than everybody else. Think about it. The city of Seattle has $5 billion as their budget. They can't handle the, the, the situation on their own. King County has $26 billion as its budget. It can't handle uh, homelessness on its own. It, we all have to do our part, and we all have to, have to um, look at this as a, a regional issue. And then for me, when it comes to affordable housing, Everybody keeps talking about the lip service about, oh, we got to get affordable housing, we got to get affordable housing, but nobody's actually really looking at innovative solutions to actually bring affordable housing to our communities, right? They're not really thinking about um, some of the bright spots that we've seen across the country, like Asheville, North Carolina, where they've worked with different foundations within the community that have provided over $50 million in helping the city actually build out affordable housing. We can do those same things here. There's bright spots all over the country. We're not reinventing the wheel, right? All we have to do is take the same thing they did and apply it to our communities, right? And so those are the things I'm really pushing for. And finally, when it comes to substance abuse and when it comes to people experiencing mental health, the last thing 
you need to show up to that situation as a police officer. Just a uniform, just a taser, and the gun and the baton escalates the situation past where it should be. We should be thinking about programs like the amazing program in Eugene, Oregon, called Cahoots, where you actually send people that had life experiences in mental health and substance abuse. They actually show up and they say, hey, I hear you. I've been there. I've done that. I want to help you get through this. Instead, we want to take a punitive route and say, you know what? If you're going to be causing an issue within a community, we're just going to throw you in jail. And that's not going to help anyone. And so those are the things that we need to push for across this community. And so those are the reasons why I'm running for uh, Renton City Council. Well, I will, two things I will say about that. Uh, one is we actually did a, a, a very recent town hall on uh, mental health and policing and uh, the CAHOOTS program. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, uh, we will provide a link to that in the show notes. I also just, I, I want to end this on kind of an up note. So uh, as I mentioned in the intro, you are very much a tech guy. You're one of those people who makes me very aware of my like right-brained, <laughs> you know, arts, humanity, <laughs> English major kind of, kind of, you know, brains that I have. Um, but you, you talk about how Far too many people, particularly BIPOC and black people, are really being left behind in the technological sector. Talk about the impact of this. And I mean, you know, in education, I mean, in broadband, uh, in access and, and how we can create digital equity in our communities. That's a great question. So if you look across um, the region, the pandemic showed really, really obviously that we all we all don't have access to uh, the digital um devices, internet, all those things as, as other folks do within our community. And one of the things that we really need to do is really focus from a municipality perspective is how can we change the digital divide? How do we make sure that our communities have digital equity? Um, one of the things that you, uh, I did when I was the chief information officer for the city of Tukwila, I worked with the mayor and city council and we actually started distributing hotspots and actually building out a free Wi-Fi program across the city that allowed people to be able to access the internet. And we, in all municipalities really need to be thinking about that. We should not put our community members and our school-aged kids back in the same situation that they experienced during the pandemic. My wife's a teacher. She's been a teacher for 20 years. And she had kids that hadn't showed up in school until they were able to actually be back in the classroom because they didn't have a stable internet, right? That's ridiculous. The one thing that you're promised here in the United States is a free education, and these kids couldn't even access it because they didn't have access to the internet. And so there's a, once again, I'm gonna talk about bright spots. The city of Anacortes was going through the same thing. They couldn't find providers that would provide access to the entire city adequately. So they said, you know, we're gonna take it into our own hands. As a municipality, they are the one city within the Northwest, within the actually North America, that actually did a program where they ran fiber through water lines to people's homes to provide the last mile of internet. Can you imagine? You can use water lines and connect people to broadband and change folks' lives, right? And so those are the things I think that we, we, we have to be thinking innovatively about how do we change these things. And, and that's one of the things I bring to the table. My technology career, and, and, and the ideas that I have around how we can really, really solve the digital divide is going to help us for the future. 
I, the the water wines things just, just it just blows my mind. I mean, it's it's so far outside of my thinking with it. Telephone lines, electrical lines, water lines. There's no impedance. It's beautiful. So uh, I'm going to give you the last word here. What do you need for your campaign? How can people help? Um. So I'm I'm actually going to say it. You know, I need dollars. <laughs> um. I need you to go to www.votejotod.com and donate. And the other folks. And the other thing I need, just like Will said. I need folks to knock on doors with me. We got to get the word out. Um, I can tell you that my opponent um, uh, was a 27-year incumbent. He dropped out of the race, and then he endorsed someone else to run in his stead. And, I'll, and, I, and I don't know if enough folks know about this, but um, all skin folk and kin folk. And, when ju- and just because they, they picked another black guy to run against me, and that's a conservative, doesn't mean that he has progressive ideas about the way that we should go into the future. And so I really need folks to go to www.votejotod.com and donate, come out and canvas with us, and let's turn the city of Renton, let's, let's make sure the city of Renton really is ahead of the curve like they say they are. Joe Todd, thank you so much. Uh, round of hands for Joe Todd, please. Just amazing. And, and thank you to all of our other amazing panelists tonight, Hugo Garcia, Cliff Cawthon, Don Bennett, Edith Guzman, and Soleil Lewis. Hands for all of you. You are amazing. We are so grateful to have you on the panel with us tonight. And that's going to do it for this week. Special thanks to Senator Mona Doss, former State Representative Marcy Maxwell, Robin Gittleman, Louise Pathé, and Kevin Jones. The producer of the Town Hall series is Kat Pipkin. The email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com, and the web address is indivisiblepodcast.org. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell, and as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Time. Bye.